Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to uh, welcome our viewers and our listeners again today for another in the series of uh, interviews with the experts. My name is Malcolm Bell. I'm the Vice Chair for the Department of uh, Cardiovascular Medicine here at uh, Mayo Clinic Rochester. And it's my great pleasure today to uh, introduce our uh, guest, uh, Dr. Mauricio uh, Villavicencio, uh, who's an Associate Professor of Surgery here at, at Mayo and Director of our Heart uh, Transplant Program. Uh, welcome, Mauricio. Well, thanks very much for the warm welcome, and I'm delighted to be here, you know, and talk to you about this uh, important topic. For, for me, it's a passion, so I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, well, we're thrilled to have you here, and I'm sure that uh, we'll be hearing lots of very interesting uh, uh, information from you. So really, we're, we're here to talk about what's happening in the world of cardiac transplantation uh, today. And, and maybe I'll just start off asking you a very simple question. We're aware of many advances in um, assessment and uh, treatment uh, outcome after uh, cardiac transplantation, but what do you consider to be the single greatest advancement in heart transplantation in the last decade? Well, I think it would be, uh, probably I would think about two very hard contenders, you know, for that uh, first place, I would say in the single uh, advancement. Uh, I think uh, overall, uh, I think heart transplantation for me, you know, the two most important things uh, the last decade has been the introduction of the DCD, heart transplantation, uh, which, you know, we didn't have before that was done, you know, by the pioneers in Australia and then moved to the United Kingdom. And then a few years later here in the U.S., probably that will be... Well, just, let's just introduce, uh, interrupt you. Uh, some of our uh, viewers and listeners may not be familiar what DCD uh, uh, stands for. Yeah, DCD is, uh, is, is uh, the donors after uh, circulatory death. So essentially, you know, we have to be clear that uh, we have had a traditional type of donor, uh, the donor after brain dead, that the, you know, the brain is injured, uh, the donor is uh, brain dead and is, you know, the legal system uh, dead. So we could go after, you know, a beating heart, assess the beating heart and uh, take it out and transplant. That's our traditional donor. But now more and more has increased, you know, reached about 30% in the U.S., the DCD donors, uh, which is those that, you know, have some sort of neurological injury, but they are not brain dead. So they are not dead. And, you you know, obviously from ethical reasons, you cannot take the heart. But uh, what happens is, uh, you know, because the neurological prognosis is very poor, then it's decided to withdraw care, the family withdraw care. And then this is done in a control fashion in the operating room and the donor will, you know, go hypotensive with the saturation, the heart will stop, will be five minutes after declaration of death. And then we could open up uh, uh, the donor and uh, take out the heart. And it's a heart that is stopped, that, you know, it's distended, looks terrible. <laughs> so you say, why would you have interest in transplanting that organ? So that, uh, you know, Dr. Mauricio might be crazy trying to, you know, do that. But this um, was a pioneer, you know, as I said, in Australia and then uh, moved here. 
And then you have to think that it's around 30% of our donors are now DCDs. And then in other countries, like in the UK, 50% of the donors are DCD donors. So it's, uh, it's still underutilized, but it has opened a door of greatly increasing the availability of organs. That's what I would rank it, you know, number one in the greatest advancement, you know, going back to what we were talking about. And then only maybe the second one for me, you know, the ex vivo heart uh, perfusion, you know, that has been replacing cold storage in certain situations in heart transplantation. So th those are the two probably DCD. I think it has more uh, an importance in terms that, you know, for the wide impact that can have, you know, in, uh, you know, reaching many patients, you know, that are in need of uh, a heart transplant. Well, we'll come back to DCD here in, in a moment. Maybe just another very simple question to, to ask. Are there increasing numbers of patients now awaiting transplantation? And I, I'm asking that because you know, we now have durable uh, VADs that uh, you know, many patients receive. And uh, has the donor pool increased significantly, particularly you know, prior to DCD uh, options? And so we, we, we know that there has been a you know, very uh, small donor pool. Has that increased significantly? And is it going to match perhaps the increased number of people uh, waiting for uh, cardiac transplants? Well, it has increased the donor pool through several initiatives. So, you know, the UNOS here, here in the U.S. has been, uh, done a great job that every year we have had increased number of heart transplant, you know, that come uh, from increased donor pool. You know, one other significant example is, is the, for example, the hepatitis C donors. Uh, the, you know, as you know, hepatitis C wasn't, uh, it was a disease difficult to treat before, but with the advent of the direct antivirals, uh, you know, that was kind of five years ago that we were able to treat aggressively the, the recipients uh, for, uh, that have donors from hepatitis C. So what it turns out that, you know, currently in the U.S., 20% of the donors are from drug overdose. And from those, around 18% are hepatitis C donors. So it's a significant uh, uh, contribution, you know, to increase the donor pool. Then, um, we, you know, we have been getting way more aggressive look at some donors that, you know, previously we wouldn't. And, and the DCD is part of that reality. So before we, uh, again, before we move back to DCD, We've also heard about your know, xenotransplantation in, in the press uh, recently. Uh, is xenotransplantation having a um, you know, resurrection here? You know, with <laughs> a lot of interest in this years ago, but it didn't seem to have gone very far. So is there renewed interest and hope uh, in, in that uh, field? Well, I, I have to confess that uh, I wasn't skeptical about xenotransplantation, especially, you know, the... There's some, uh, you know, great uh, transplant surgeons that have say, senior transplant is the future and always will be. And then, you know, I, uh, you know, worked with Chris McGregor here at the Mayo Clinic, you know, several years ago when he was doing, you know, senior transplant and he was looking forward to have it in the clinic, uh, you know, in, you know, three or four years. And, you know, it's been uh, 18 years since then, and then we still don't have it, uh, you know, clinically available. However, you know, this, uh, this a recent one that was done by the, Dr. Griffith and, and his team, you know, uh, and I have, uh, 
you know, look into the case uh, deeply and explain and discuss with him in one of, you know, our thoracic meetings. And actually it was uh, quite inspiring. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, at least for me, very inspiring because they, they did a, so a sinotransplant from a, you know, transgenic peak into uh, a human recipient that uh, didn't meet criteria for, for transplant and had a very extremely, I mean, if you would have put it uh, on the list, it would have extremely high risk because the patient was, the condition wasn't being arterial, ECMO was, uh, you know, stuck on the ICU for, uh, for a long time and the patient had had uh, not, not compliance in the past, but it was very categorical about that. So there was a lot of ethical dilemmas in there, but I would, uh, you know, cut to the point in terms that, um, you know, they transplanted it, they faced uh, significant problems, you know, putting the heart in their recipient because the, the, you know, they took a, a big uh, heart to, you know, put it into a big man, but actually once they opened uh, the, the pig, the heart was kind of small. So they had to modify somewhat their technique and do sort of the older biatrial uh, heart transplant uh, technique to be able to sew the, the heart. And then they had an, a terrible interpretive complication that is very uncommon, but you know, it happened on this patient that was an, an aortic dissection. So they had to do a replacement of the aortic arch with a frozen elephant trunk. So in spite that, of all of that, the heart looked hyperdynamic after that. So you got an ejection fraction for around three weeks of around 80%, I would say. And, you know, a patient was able to, you know, get off the venous arterial ECMO. And then, uh, uh, you know, there has some complications with the viruses. And then in week four or five, can't remember exactly what was it, the heart started getting thickened. And then apparently, the, you know, they took several biopsies and there were no rejections. So I found that quite remarkable, but it happened at the kind of, you know, the, the heart started getting thick, but it was, you know, not like, you know, kind of mild hypertrophy, like it looked like, you know, two or three times uh, the thickness of the, of the wall. And then, the, you know, the function deteriorated and the patient passed away. And then on, on, on the, you know, on the pathology was demonstrated essentially there were red blood cells, you know, circulating within the myocardial fibers. So you would say it was kind of the endothelium was the sort of destroyed lately, but there was no evidence of cellular rejection or humoral rejection. So I found that uh, very attractive, the concept and breathtaking, you know, uh, to see, but, you know, certainly we're not there. And I think there's gonna have to be the more experiences and maybe in brain dead uh, recipients and see, see how it goes, but it's not, uh, you know, ready for a clinical trial uh, sure. or anywhere near that. So, well thank, that, you know. well, thank you for those comments. Uh, so, so let's move back to the donation after circulatory uh, death. So as you said earlier, th these are patients who've had serious neurologic injury, but technically are not brain dead they have circulatory uh, or cardiac respiratory failure. So presumably they're on inotropes and presses and a ventilator, but then you're pre presumably waiting to withdraw that support, an appropriate uh, donor. 
And as you said, then you wait for that circuitry arrest or death, and you're going to wait, you, I think you said five minutes, uh, the maximum. Typically, I mean, that patient's about to die or that heart's going to die. And so there's that warm ischemic insult. And so that's why you, you said, you know, five minutes. Could you just maybe just briefly explain then what you do? I mean, it sounds to me that you're going to basically be resuscitating that heart again with perfusion, ECMO perhaps. Uh, but maybe you just explain exactly yeah. what you do there. Because yeah. again, technically the patient isn't brain dead. Yeah. So l- let me tell you a little bit uh, what it happens uh, before, because we have to start with the donor that we're a little bit more selective with the donor. So the donor has neurological injury, and then, but the heart has to have normal function and a normal echocardiogram, and then hopefully no inotropes. So we in very good circulatory condition, but what is the problem is, you know, is the neurologic condition. So when they take the breathing tube out, you know, in a controlled fashion in the operating, you know, blood pressure will go down, but it will go down secondary to, you know, the neurologic and respiratory problem, you know, lack of ventilation, if you would. And then, uh, of course, you know, there's a one period of ischemia, you know, that we uh, say, you know, when the, whenever the pressure go, it starts, whenever the pressure on the donor goes below 50, you know, you start having warm ischemia to the heart. So the injury is, you know, starts there. And then uh, moreover, when it has stopped the heart and you have to wait five minutes. So essentially you have to resuscitate that recently previous very good heart in a way. And there's where it comes, you know, the the modern techniques of procurement that are essentially two. Is one is you know normothermic regional perfusion, and the second one is ex vivo heart perfusion. I'll I'll explain both for those you know I haven't heard about them. The normothermic regional perfusion essentially you go with a heart and lung bypass machine or an ECMO machine to the donor, and once the heart uh, has a stop. Uh, that has been declared, you open the chest and you quickly cannulate the patient for cardiopulmonary bypass. And then you occlude the brachycephalic vessels, the vessels that go to the head. So to avoid reestablishment of the flow, you know, to the brain. So essentially you clamp uh, the nominate, the left carotid, the left subclavian, and you go on bypass. So you go on bypass most of the time for around 45 minutes, something like that, and then you come off bypass. And then you take a look at the heart and see how that heart looks after, you know, being in bypass for 45 minutes. And then you like it, you take it out in the same way that you do a brain dead. So you give, you know, cold blood cardioplegia. Then you go ahead and transplant it into your, your patient. How that sound? Was that clear or in, in any no, I, I comments? It's very clear. And obviously this is done under very controlled conditions. You've got an open sternotomy and you've got everything under yeah. control. But uh, I think one of the important points you've made, but then the procurement at that point is the same as if it were coming from a brain dead uh, patient. Correct, correct. And then you talked about um, the ex vivo uh, system. And so this is that so-called heart in a box. And I know you talked about this just recently um, in one of these sessions, but maybe you could just briefly remind our uh, listeners, you know, what that entails. 
Well, this is a, you know, kind of fascinating technology because essentially it's kind of a portable ECMO, especially designed to procure a heart. So that, you know, you get a, it's kind of device that's the size of the dishwasher. You take it on the plane and what happens is the CD donor, when the heart has to stop, you take out the, the, the heart and put it on the OCS device and uh, with intention of resuscitating the donor. So in that sense, we would call it sort of a direct DCD donation, you know, without going on, you know, normal thermic regional perfusion. So you put it directly into the ex vivo sort of ECMO circuit. So there's a pump, there's oxygenation, you control the temperature, you see the hematocrit, you see the pressure in the aortic uh, root. But so you inject the blood through the aortic root that comes out, you know, through the coronary sinus, and then, uh, you know, you close the IVC and SVC, and then the blood goes to the, you know, right ventricle, PA, and then you collect it again and then pop it again into the aortic root. So essentially, you kind of provide a circulatory system, you know, within that device. And you potentially then could combine that with your, um, uh, your normothermic regional perfusion as well, in terms of because you're talking now about transportation of that heart. Yes. So you are able now in this in with this technique, you're able to put it on the uh, heart in a box and transport the heart. And you transport it, you know, in a normal thermic fashion, meaning at 36 degrees with the heart beating. So, you know, you're able to hook it on the device, perfuse it, and then get the heart beating. So what happens is that heart that was, you know, arrested and, but it was, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, uh, you know, a good functioning heart, you resuscitated on the device. And essentially what you get at the beginning and what you monitor is the lactate levels. So you monitor the lactate levels during transport and when you're arriving to your recipient hospital, and then you want your lactate levels, you know, be kind of stabilizing or going down because, as you know, the heart, you know, has this unique capability of, you know, metabolizing the lactate, not only when you have, a, you know, when the heart is in shock, you know, produces lactate, but when, the, when you know, it's functioning well, it's metabolizing the lactate. So it should, you know, start coming down. So if your lactates are coming down, you know, with the heart on the device, and then you see your heart that is looking good, you know, with good contraction on the device, then you go ahead and transplant it. And then in this case, you sort of miss, minimize the, you know, the ischemic time because you are perfusing it all the time with the blood. I forgot to tell that when you have a DCD donor, you put the cannula in the right atrium and drain all the blood, you know, from the donor uh, to, you know, uh, put it on the, on the circuit, you know, OCS device. So that is what it produces, uh, you know, that the heart, you know, to recover on it and then you transplant. So, you know, so far what has been, you know, there's has been a US trial and then it has been approved for, uh, you know, FDA use on DCD donors, uh, the device. And then quite remarkable because the survival of those heart transplanted patients is the same that in a brain dead donor. And uh, provided that, you know, probably we're more selective, you know, with the type of donors that we choose. And then there's a, a little bit of more primary graft dysfunction, sort of meaning the need of a venous arterial ECMO or a balloon pump or once or you know inotropes right after with this technique. But I think uh, it's kind of in the way I see it is that 
the heart needs a little bit more time to recover completely because you might perfuse it. You know, you take out the heart from the DCD donor and then you might perfuse it, you know, for four or five hours, but probably the heart will need after the period of cardiac arrest a little bit more time to recover. So sometimes you put the, the your recipient on, on ECMO and then take it out really quickly. And I, you know, I have transplanted uh, many patients that the heart after I implanted it, that doesn't work. And then that's what we need to kind of put our research on, you know, see what are the factors that lead to that, that, you know, some of the heart, you know, doesn't work. But then you put your recipient on VA ECMO and the reality is that it recovers very fast. So all those that I have done, they have recovered very quickly. And then you pull out the venous arterial ECMO on your recipient in two or three days. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And maybe just one quick question. Does this allow you then a, uh, a longer window of time between the procurement and then uh, transplanting into the recipient? And I guess I'm thinking about uh, transportation, you know, from, you know, does that allow longer distances for, for transportation or is it, are you still limited in terms of the time that you can keep that heart? Well, we have prolonged it quite a bit because, you know, with the cold storage uh, method, you know, we had kind of four hours and some people, you know, especially the guys from Australia or ones that are in Seattle, you know, they, they have to travel longer, you know, to get a donor maybe, you know, but uh, in this case, you know, I have easily gone eight, nine hours total out of the body time. So with five, six hours of perfusion, then the, the beauty of it that you take it out of the heart and then sew it in, and then it works perfectly well. So it's kind of, for me, it's a game changer because, you know, all, uh, you know, long ischemic times, the dysfunction that you, you know, have to withstand. And then, you know, this makes the heart quite strong. So here, you know, and you know, we go from Rochester, Minnesota, we have taken, you know, hearts uh, from, uh, you know, New Mexico, from the East Coast, you know, from way west. And then, uh, you know, there's no problem. And then uh, if the donor is brain dead, you could use it brain dead. So the donor is brain dead. And then, uh, and then you take it and then the, uh, the heart, uh, you know, works qu uh, quite well. On, on the OCS uh, device, you know. And then, uh, you know, there's less primary graft dysfunction that a, a DCD donor, you know, as I said, the uh, DCD donor has more primary graft dysfunction, recovers quickly, but but you travel long distances, uh, you get, you know, at least four more hours. And then, you know, we need to have a little bit of a caveat here because, you know, the longer you perfuse it, I think on the device, the heart tends to get edematose. And I really don't know why is that, you know, maybe it's not in the intrathoracic cage or what is going on, but it just gets, a, you know, a little bit of kind of petechiae and edematose. We as a cardiac surgeon would like, you know, to put the heart on the device and then come at seven in the morning and do the heart transplant. And then <laughs> most of the team, the team would love that. And then, uh, but I don't think we're yet there because, uh, you know, probably we have doubled, you know, the time, you know, it's not forever. Yeah, I actually, uh, the, 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 your transplant teams do not seem to be a service that uh, is done at convenient times. So uh, you don't work by convenience, <laughs> uh, at least by uh, at this point. 
Well, this is really fascinating. I and mean, we didn't even really start talking about some of the ethical issues with uh, DCD, but uh, presumably that's all being, I mean, it's an approved uh, you know, approach here. And if I'm remembering my history uh, correctly, uh, I think the very first transplant that uh, was done by uh, Christian Barnard back in the 60s there, that uh, that actually was a uh, circuitry uh, failure, uh, circuitry death, and, and not a brain death uh, patient. But so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's uh, certainly something I remember uh, you know, reading a, a number of years ago. Yeah, I believe it was a DCD donor, actually. We didn't know. I mean, it, it didn't have that label at that time, you know, because we didn't know, you know, what was this donor. But uh, it was like that, the hardest stop. But I, I believe, you know, they put it uh, really quickly, you know, on the recipient and then resuscitated on the recipient yeah. because obviously we didn't have, you know, normal thermic renal heart perfusion or ex vivo heart perfusion. And then it worked quite well. So that's the, that's the way it started, I think, in heart and lung. Both first uh, transplants were, were sort of DCD donors, you know, later on, you know, kind of the conventional definition of brain death was, uh, you know, written. Once again, history uh, you know, recycles itself. We've actually gone a little bit over time. Uh, I think we could be here uh, talking about these advances uh, for uh, some time yet, but we'll have to stop there. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing uh, your views and your experience uh, on, on this and, and these remarkable uh, developments in the world of cardiac uh, transplantation. So thank you so much, Mauricio. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for the invite. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.